and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this week we have the second installment of a two-part interview where returning guest host Dr. David Mason speaks with Dr. Julie Carr about her book, Mud, Blood, and Ghosts, Populism, Eugenics, and Spiritualism in the American West, which is published by the University of Nebraska Press. David is the director of Asian Studies Department of Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Julie is the director of the Women's Studies Department and professor of English at the University of Colorado, Boulder. They pick up their conversation discussing Julie's great-grandfather, Omer Kerm, who started off as a populist politician and ended up as a eugenicist. This guy who is born to nothing and can't seem to manage to secure anything of his own, right. he ends up in, in Congress. How, how does that happen? <laughs> yeah, when I write about that, you know, I say something like, you know, what got him there? And that it's, you know, kind of needless to say his maleness and his whiteness paved the way, right? Needless to say, but we should say it anyway. But that also, you know, the that poverty was a barrier, but it wasn't an uncrossable barrier. And that I think is an important thing to say. You know, it's Nebraska. There's not a ton of people, of voting people there at that time. There's certainly a growing sense of kind of political identity or political movements happening in the state until the populace came along. It was run by Republicans, kind of moneyed Republicans. And the populist party, you know, they rose up. It was a farming state. And most of the farmers, the poor farmers, or the sort of just making it farmers, they called them honest to goodness dirt farmers of Nebraska became populists. And they really did kind of take over the state for a few years, for about a decade. And it seemed to me that Omer comes into this perception that as hard as he might ever work in his yeah. life, that's already, you know, proven this, he's never going to get ahead because of debt. Exactly. Debt is the problem. And he understands that there has to be laws. There has to be political change, political movement, and then changes in the laws in order to support farming. Farming doesn't work in the West on its own. So you can think about that too, in terms of this idea, this ideal of the independent farmer, right? It's never going to work in the West. I mean, it's just a, a fact of the climate. You cannot successfully farm without support. And what's that support going to look like? It could look like things like government financial support, or it could look like huge irrigation projects. <laughs> so that's another part of the story is the populace were advocating for a nationalization of water use for the formation of major irrigation projects that could essentially turn the West into viable farmland. And he was part of that as well. So we did it. We did do that. And now we're facing the consequences of that as well. In all of this, especially after maybe Omer goes to Congress, it turns out, I don't know exactly where this first appears in his autobiography, which you've read, but turns out that he's got a friend that <laughs> that kind of lives with him and and in yeah. him all the time. Where how, Who's the friend yeah. and how does who's this friend? friend show up? Okay. So right around the time he's running for Congress, he starts encountering spiritualists, one in particular, but spiritualism, as I'm sure you know, was all over the country in the 19th centuries from about the middle of the 19th century towards the end of it. This is sort of the second wave of spiritualism. So it's 
you know, after the first wave being in around 1850. And he's heard about it all his life, ghost stories running through the family, lots of colorful tales, but, you know, he's sort of not that involved. And then he meets a man while he's on the road campaigning. Campaigning in those days, you kind of go door to door and you kind of sleep over. <laughs> can I have your vote? And also, can I sleep over? And this man named Harris sets up a situation for Omer to experience an encounter with his dead mother. So this is through a, a table tipping, table knocking situation. After that, where he sort of converses with his dead mother, she's making the table knock or rock up and down. And he's asking her sort of silent questions in, in his head. He becomes interested in spiritualism and he starts to kind of want to know more and research it and ask people about it. When he moves to D.C., he meets a couple, Thomas and Cora Bland. Thomas and Cora Bland are really important in the history of the Indian reform movements. They were leaders of the most radical side of the Indian reform movement. So they were not assimilationists. They basically believed in and advocated for Native sovereignty, including land sovereignty, which, as I was saying before, was a very rare, extremely rare position to take, but they weren't the only ones. They ran a movement. And so they were also spiritualists. They were also populists. They're a fascinating couple, and they should be written more about. They invited him over. So, you know, they heard this new populist is in town. Let's meet him. They invite him over. They have dinner. And they realize by talking to him that he's interested in spiritualism. And so they invite him back second time. And this time they introduce him to their niece, Maggie, who is mediumistic. So through Maggie, and that's a whole nother story about how young women were the, the mediums and what that means in terms of sexual politics and all kinds of other things. He gets more and more and more and more drawn into spiritualism. He has all kinds of encounters with his dead relatives. I tell these stories. I think they're amazing. But eventually what sticks for the longest is this idea that he himself is mediumistic and he has a spirit guide, which is to say there's a spirit that is entering his body and moving through him. That spirit is a Native American healer. So just to emphasize, this is imaginary. So I believe it's imaginary, named Fleetwind. He gives Fleetwind a name. It's a little hokey. A lot of things are hokey. So he names him Fleetwind, and Fleetwind is now living in his body as a spirit for the rest of his life. So that's another 40 years. Fleetwind is able to heal his children or his wife or himself whenever anybody is sick or is injured. He'll call on Fleetwind or he'll, or he'll feel Fleetwind sort of arrive, and then he'll do the healing act himself, usually by like placing his hands on the sick person or stroking them. But the understanding is that it's Fleetwind doing it. Fleetwind also speaks to him in his head and they have conversations. So there's a lot going on there. One of the things that stands out almost immediately is a kind of homoerotics because he imagines Fleetwind visiting him at night, especially as he gets older and massaging his body kind of through the night. But that aside, the sort of, I guess you could say political dynamic there. The way I read it is that he knew that he, by his very presence and also by his actions in Congress, was enacting harm on, on Native populations. 
He knew that, he said it, he acknowledged it, and he did it anyway. He, he then kind of creates a situation in which the, the sort of figure that stands in for the Native person or the Indian is healing him, right? So he's caused the harm, and yet he's requiring that person to do the healing act for him. So you can kind of see that racial dynamic played out in relationships between white people and people of color all the time. You can see it in literature, you can see it in the movies, and you can see it in real life all the time. So my people hurt your people. You now have to forgive me. You now have to heal me in some way. You know, I kind of require that of you in one way or another. So this was a dynamic that he realized very concretely in a way and lived with for decades. And it was part of the way that he reconciled these contradictions in his life and his activity. You know, through his body, you know, I mean, he would refer to Fleetwind in letters to his kids, you know, as my long life friend, my deep friend, my constant companion, my loyal friend and healer. You know, he generated a relationship with Native Americans, in a sense, through this racial imaginary, what we call a racial imaginary. I write about this, but I, I think it's interesting that I was always told about Fleetwind. Like as a little girl, I knew about Fleetwind. But either because I misunderstood or because of the way that the stories were told, I thought Fleetwind was a real person. So I just always thought, I have this sort of funny great-grandfather, he believed in all these interesting things, and he had a friend who was a Native American who was a massage therapist and taught him and how to do massage and, you know, helped him with his arthritis. So this was what I believed for like my entire childhood. I think at some point I started to know that it wasn't real, but I didn't fully know that until I was reading the manuscript. Wow. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, now I see what this is. And I kind of knew, kind of didn't know, I wasn't quite sure. But to me, that also was revealing that I felt sort of a kind of pride in this relationship that I thought was real, as if it showed something progressive <laughs> about my great-grandfather. To me, that also spoke about that desire that I even had, you know, even as a child for some kind of reconciliation. So, I mean, ghosts... And spiritualism clearly are entangled with Omer's political identity. Does the same movement, spiritualism activity in the late 1900s, affect populism as a movement similarly? Is it Are those two things generally entangled or just specifically in Omer's life? I wanted to know that, and I wasn't really able to figure that out. I didn't find a lot about spiritualism in the populist literature that I read or vice versa. So... I really can't say whether there was a broad, you know, like a lot of populists were spiritualists. I can only kind of assume because I know that the Blands were, I know that he was, you know, I'm sure that there were others and that there's an overlap there in terms of both movements looking for ways to break down hierarchies, right? And looking for kind of alternative ways of understanding social dynamics, that's an open question. How much overlap really was there, you know, kind of statistically that I wasn't able to figure out. But eugenics seemed to have permeated populism, if not the populist party as a formal institution. By the way, when does when does the populist party go away as a political entity? Yeah. So actually, so eugenics and populism kind of dovetail. They don't overlap entirely. So 
kind of depends on when you date the beginning of eugenics. And you can date it a lot earlier than it's generally dated. Populism kind of folds into the Democratic Party in 1896. This is the year that they run a ticket that is a split ticket. But essentially, that's the moment when the populists sort of decide that the Democrats can carry their goals or their or their message into the future. And so at that point, populism as a party doesn't really exist anymore, though there are still populists, right? With eugenics, the date a lot of people will look to is 1907, because that was the date when the first sterilization laws were put on the books in Indiana. But the ideas that lead to this, the idea that certain qualities are heritable, that by controlling populations, one could control those qualities, you know, trying to kind of steer the population towards positive qualities and away from so-called negative qualities. Those ideas show up as early as like the 1880s, if not even earlier. They show up in the debates around the Chinese Exclusion Act in Congress, which I read. Even they show up in some of the language around the lynching epidemic of post-Reconstruction era. So people talk about lynching men for supposed rape, and that not only are we punishing them or holding them up as a sort of an example of what can happen to you if you cross racial barriers or whatever, we're also thereby reducing the ability for the reproduction of rapists, essentially. So this idea that criminality or different kinds of behaviors could be passed down genetically, and therefore we should murder or limit the marriages of or keep out of the nation people who could pass on those qualities through their reproduction. Those ideas are in play through the populist era. As far as we're like many, many, many populist eugenicists, again, that kind of statistical research is not really what I was doing or what I'm also not what I'm trained to do. But what I was paying attention to was where did eugenics thinking first show up? Like where in the country? And for sure, it's sort of hot points are going to be on the West Coast and on the Northeast. But the first illegal at that time institutionalized sterilizations happened in Kansas. And a lot of this amazing scholar, Mark Largent, writes about this, how the medical writings of the Western states, so Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, that's where you find doctors at the earliest expressions of eugenic thinking or ideas around for sterilization. So the fact that it's happening in the same states and at the same time the populism is arising is I think really significant, even if I didn't do the work to find out how many populists signed on to eugenics in the 1890s. But there's a personal part of this story that really caught my attention, Omer's ongoing, long-standing friendship with a man with whom he corresponds frequently all the way to the end of his life, where they seem to have started politically in the same place, but gone different directions. Yeah. So his relationship with Jim, Jim Ream was his name. They meet when they're both homesteaders in Nebraska. There's a terrible winter when after Omer's first wife has died, he's so poor and he has these three little children that he cannot 
take care of his children and farm at the same time, right? They can't be left alone in the house. He sends them off to relatives. So he's he's lost his wife. He's sent off his children, doesn't know when he'll be able to get them back. And he has to mortgage all his land. And so he goes to work for somebody. He's got to labor and he works for Jim. And Jim is a sheep farmer. Jim has a whole bunch of sheep. And so they take care of the sheep through a terrible, terrible winter. You know, what they're doing is staying out all night in the blizzards, trying to keep the sheep from freezing so they don't die. So that's how he meets Jim and they become friends. And they stay friends for their entire lives. And Jim was also a populist. Towards the end of his life, I think he wasn't in touch with Jim for a while, and then they kind of get back in touch. And he finds out, you know, through, you know, reading what Jim has written that was published in The Grange, that Jim is still advocating for many of the same things that they advocated for as populists, the same kinds of ideas or ideals around equality. Omer, at this point, is a committed eugenicist. And so they start through letters, a debate, and the debate goes on for many, many, many years. In that debate, we learn that, you know, Omer is trying to convince Jim, essentially, that political solutions won't work. The country is headed towards disaster, you know, at first when they're writing 1920s, 20s, and then it's headed towards the Depression. And, you know, disaster is there <laughs> for sure. He's saying political solutions won't work. The only thing we can do is make better people. And Jim is saying, no, the problem is actually capitalism, or at least the version of capitalism that we're working under. And he has become a socialist, like under sort of Eugene Debs, he's become a prairie socialist. And what I found very moving in their correspondence is, for one thing, their kind of mutual love for each other. They clearly care deeply about one another, and yet their differences so gets sort of starker and starker the longer they they write to one another. And it becomes very strained and actually quite sad. But the other thing that was very moving to me was Jim's philosophy. Omer's always saying to him, you know, tell me how socialism would work. I don't understand how it would really work. And, you know, hates the Bolsheviks. And he's like, give me some practical solutions here. Socialism, just a dream. It's just a fantasy. And Jim keeps saying, look, I don't know how it's going to work exactly, but I know what the foundation is. And the foundation is that every living thing, not just humans, but animals, vegetable life, like all living creatures deserve to thrive. And all people deserve the benefits of what they call the machine age, all deserve the benefits and nobody deserves more than anybody else. And that's the foundation. And that kind of like deep sense of what you could call populism, like this deep sense of egalitarianism across not just humans, but across species and into plant life. And, you know, it's just like a deeply moving foundation from which to build one's politics. And Omer can't go there. He's gone completely in the other direction. You know, some deserve to live and some do not. Even though he started there, you know, in his Nebraska days, he would have affirmed that very philosophy, no? He would have. I think he would have, you know. So there's something there, too, in what you're asking about when we're looking at history and we're looking at, you know, figures in history who disappoint us. Can we still value what they offered before they disappointed us, like with Margaret Sanger, who I write about? Or do we always have to condemn them for their sort of final words? You know, and I don't know that I know the answer to that, but I think I feel in my in my sort of part that one shouldn't only judge people for where they ended up. 
that one can also look to where they began or to moments of, I don't know, enlightenment or moments of care or love that they expressed and value that, even if they disappointed us. Sorry, is this a way that your book hopes we will think about the country, the United States of America? Yeah, I mean, we're in a dark place. I think it's hard to have a lot of hope right now, but I also think it's terrible not to. So on the one hand, I don't like easy expressions of let's cross the aisle, let's all get along, let's make friends at Thanksgiving. All of that is really problematic for me because it often means that we're meant to ignore expressions and actions of real harm, either to ourselves or to people we care about. And I'm not really willing to do that. On the other hand, to just write off half the country as if that's going to somehow get us anywhere is a different kind of giving up. So I don't know exactly where I stand on that, but I do feel like the book helped me think about the nuances of people's ethics and their politics and the ways that people can get lost, which opens up the possibility that they also might not have gotten lost, right? I mean, I think one of the most important things that I learned by deeply getting into history for a bunch of years in this way, American history, studying history has helped me to realize that nothing that happens in history is inevitable. Right. That there's choices that we're making and that everybody's making all along the way. And it isn't just that there are hinge moments. So now's a moment, an inflection point. We could all decide to do this or we could do that. But that like actually every single moment is a hinge moment for every single person. So there's that sense that possibility is always there and we don't know what's going to happen, you know? So I think that's where hope lies. If you were asking sort of, does this book help me think about our country and imagine a more hopeful future for us? I could say that I don't know, but it just the fact of studying history opens up the possibility that things could always be different than what we might imagine. One of the things that I liked most about this book was the way that you put yourself in it. It's Omer's story. It's a broad story about America, but it's also a story about you. Speaking of choices, why did you choose to make yourself so express and a topic in the book? So I guess there's a bunch of reasons. You know, one of them has to do with just some of the things that I've been reading over the last, I don't know, decade or so. Works by scholars like Christina Sharp or Colin Diane, Sarah Ahmed, scholars who do work in, you know, maybe Black studies, feminist studies, who have really theorized the importance of the self in scholarship, right? That we are never some, you know, objective eye on the outside looking at, but we are always implicated within what we are studying and what we are writing about. And not only that that's a fact, but also that it's an ethics to acknowledge your own place within a story, 
So that I think was sort of something I learned through reading, but also in the act of writing, it's my family, you know, it would be weird if I wasn't there in a certain way, you know, it'd be as if I'm saying, you know, he was wrong, but I'm right or something. I'm here to make, to cast judgment on the past, or I'm here to cast judgment on those who erred in the past. And somehow that puts me in a position of both authority and moral you know, high horses, this. (laughs) I didn't want to do that. I mean, I don't think that that's even accurate because, you know, I'm living a life of contradictions as well. You know, my values are not always acted out in my life either. I work for institutions who do things that I don't believe in, and yet I keep working for them anyway. I benefit from the way land is distributed or ownership is worked out in this country as well as a person who owns property, you know, all of that, you know, so you can't, you know, make a narrative that calls out those kinds of forces and not include yourself, or it's just, it just has no integrity. So there's that. There's also the fact that I'm a writer who's written, you know, multiple books of first person narrative of you know versions of memory kind of stuff of poetry of all kinds of genres where I'm present so it would be pretty impossible for me as a writer to suddenly not write that way so there's all that I also just think it's more interesting when the eye is there I found it tremendously interesting and I'm I'm always kind of on the uh, the the lookout for scholarship that wants to do scholarship differently scholarship that wants to do scholarship better although one thing that maybe your book suggests is that sorry this is going to sound very pessimistic but maybe your book suggests that nothing's ever going to get better oh gosh i mean i guess my book suggests that there's no such thing as like a linear progression towards better Hmm. right there's pockets of you know kind of fascism in this country from the start and now There's also pockets of or movements towards greater inclusion. There's expressions of freedom. Um, There's struggles for freedom all the time from the beginning and now. So I don't think I believe that things are going to get better as if we're just kind of climbing a staircase and we'll get to the top. I don't believe that. But I do believe that one can support and find one's way towards being involved in the most you know powerful and joyous movements and community actions and relationships that one can and that's part of our country as well right and it always has been always will be so short of total ecological collapse <laughs> short of that i think we'll just kind of keep going in this kind of hobbling, difficult way. Of course, I think we're in a, like I said, I think we're in a dark moment right now. And I don't think anybody would really dispute that. I think everybody thinks that for different reasons, you know, will that get better? I don't know. It depends on what we mean by better. You know, are there amazing and beautiful things happening at the very same time that there's dark and terrible things happening? Yes, definitely right now is that I'm chair of a women and gender studies department at University of Colorado in Boulder. That's not my department. I'm in English, but I came in as chair. And I just want to say like working with these people, it just gives me joy and hope 
all the time, constantly. Like the whole faculty is passionate. They are powerful. They have vision. They have projects they're working on that really matter in the real world. And they have a lot of struggle and they also have a lot of joy. And so those are grownups. And then there's the kids, you know, who are amazing, you know, so there's just every reason to feel a lot of hope and a lot of joy at the same time there's a lot of reason to feel you know afraid angry yeah well perhaps on that note julie carr author of mud blood and ghosts thank you for joining me and uh, telling us about this book which i thought was great it's going on my shelf with the books that i most value oh then thank you so much that's so kind to say and it was amazing to talk to you thank you for giving me so much airtime <laughs> it's my pleasure <laughs> okay Dr. Julie Carr is the author of Mud, Blood, and Ghost, Populism, Eugenics, and Spiritualism in the American West, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Dr. David Mason was your guest host today. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.